Welcome to Out of the Blank. another episode of out of the blank podcast here with john john it's a pleasure to have you on the show can you please introduce yourself to everyone out there listening yeah my name is john potash and i uh, wrote several i uh, wrote two books and produced several films and uh, the first book was the fbi war on tupac shakur and black leaders which i uh, published in 2007 it was republished in 2021 as just the fbi war on tupac shakur and state repression of black leaders um, and then I also wrote the book Drugs as Weapons Against Us, uh, the CIA's War on Musicians and Activists, which was uh, published in 2015. And both those books were made into films. And my most recent uh, project was I just, uh, uh, my film just came out called Shots, Eugenics to Pandemics. When it comes to, I mean, just the controversy, they're, they're kind of controversial subjects in a way as well, too. Like whenever I talk about like the CIA or drugs or MK Ultra or anything like that, people always like either roll their eyes or they say conspiracy. And it's like, for me, as just a person, I like to know more about these types of things. I mean, it does kind of make you go like your brain does melt in a sense uh, when you start finding out all this type of stuff. But then you get over it and it kind of gets comes more interesting. I feel like I'm more aware when I know more about this type of stuff. Was that the same reaction when you made your books and also your films? Yeah, yeah. I, um, you know, people basically the CIA came up with that idea of popularizing the word conspiracy and conspiracy theory as as implying irrational. It did that around after the Warren Commission came out with its report about the JFK assassination, and uh, it, people, you know, have shown and I've seen the FBI, the CIA documents on that. Ten ninety five three sixty is the document. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I'm glad you, you, you remember that. Um, I just, uh, I think, yeah, it's, you know, it's ridiculous that people, it's sad that people fall for that and think that, um, you know, that just because someone talks about people conspiring means that they're talking about irrational stuff. Um, of course, the CIA's MKUltra program has been documented, um, you know, by finding thousands of their documents, uh, approximately 10 to 20,000 of their documents were re revealed in the accounting department after the CIA director in the uh, early to mid 1970s, Richard Helms, ordered all the CIA, the MKUltra documents shredded. So the MKUltra, uh, you know, Project MKUltra ran from 1953 to at least the uh, mid you know, 1970s when again, they, they tried to shred all the documents. It's just in 1961, JFK came upon these, you know, this project and tried to shut it down. And but the assistant and he fired the you know director of the CIA um, and Alan Dulles and you know replaced him. But uh, this the lower level you know people under uh, Alan Dulles who were loyal to him kept it running behind his back, behind uh, you know JFK's back, President Kennedy's back. And um, they changed when he found it again in 1964. Uh, he tried to shut it down a second time, 
And so they just changed the name of the project to MK Search um, instead of MK Ultra. But it kept running to at least the mid 1970s again when Richard uh, Helms, uh, you know, ordered all the documents shredded because this U.S. Senate Church Committee was investigating what they heard about MK Ultra, and um, and so he tried to hide all those documents. And again, the researchers just found them in the accounting department as duplicates, and that's all we have. And the best estimates are people like Martin Lee who was researching it for many, many years, um, MKUltra to produce his book, Acid Dreams. He uh, said, you know, his best estimate um, was that the, the documents that people found uh, are about 10% um, of the total. So they found maybe some 20,000, so the total is probably 200,000 documents. Um, and this came out in, you know, in, uh, meetings, you know, Senate meetings with uh, Ted Kennedy running those meetings that's been in, in you know, shown the film talking about these documents has, has been shown, you know, and et cetera. So it's, it's not conspiracy theory. It's, it's, you know, the CIA top officials conspired to do horrible things with drugs and, um, you know, use them as what the documents say as unconventional warfare. And when we think of unconventional warfare, we think about warfare in foreign lands but uh, what the documents appear to show and what, what all the evidence, best evidence shows is that these were, they targeted uh, American dissidents. Um, people like Paul Robeson, the great singer activist, um, black singer activist who could speak 20 languages, who was a, uh, also a you know, graduate from Columbia University Law School, um, was a you know, top athlete, top football player and, and lacrosse player. He was just an amazing man. And um, they, his son said how uh, they dosed his drink in Moscow. Some um, American expatriates you know, dosed his drink in Moscow and, and really uh, dosed him enough times to make him think he was losing his mind. And when this adult son went over to check on him, he got dosed also. And then they convinced the family to you know, get, get him help in a London mental hospital where they used uh, about 50 uh, super high dose electric convulsive shock treatment on him and, and ruined his mind. And so he didn't want to be remembered that way. So he, he went into, um, he became a recluse and, you know, just went in, went in and isolated himself until he died in 1976. But he, this happened to him about two or three weeks before he was supposed to meet with uh, Che Guevara and Fidel Castro in Cuba right after the revolution happened, you know, you know two years after the revolution happened in Cuba in 1959. So that's uh, just one example of the many examples of the way MKUltra, you know, targeted people who um, dissented from the government. And I show, of course, the evidence that they also targeted musicians. Why musicians, though? Like for me, it was it was weird because I remember listening to Tom O'Neill's book um, about the Manson murders and the Bugalosi on um, his trial and everything. And there's a character called Joylon West, Luis Joylon West. So if you type him up on the, if you just type him up on Google, anybody out there listening, you're going to get a brief description about this man. And one of the things that they describe him as is using LSD for Korean war veterans to make them forget the acts that they did overseas. It was a way of like mind controlling and brainwashing. That's what he's listed on Wikipedia as. But then if you type in, okay, it says he works for the CIA. You type it in him on the CIA website. There's no documents found. But what I did find is Jack Ruby's psychiatric records. And at the bottom right of every single page is a signature. Luis Joyon West. 
And that's what like it, it's so difficult is whenever you talk about this or MK Ultra, people go, that's conspiracy. It's like, well, they destroyed the documents. And then that makes you even sound more nuts. And it's like, well, how about I show you the document where they said destroy this document? Like there that's a hundred percent what happened to me. I'm pretty sure we just got transcripts from warehouses, is how we really know that MK Ultra even exists. And when you start going into, well, how deep does this go? We know about like Operation Midnight Climax, drugging random people. And I, I love these types of conversations. I'm sorry. I just, it fascinates me because this idea that like, oh, it has to be a secret project and secrecy. It's like, I want to know about it because once you start finding out that that stuff's real, you start questioning more and you start realizing what exactly does the CIA do? Apparently they're never supposed to activate on domestic land. Well, we know that's a lie and they've been doing it for a very long time. So when it comes to the influence in musicians, I mean, is this been, is there a certain point that you noticed where it just, they kept going with it? Or was it like one person, then they saw it was effective? Did they wait a little bit or did they just keep on going with every musician they could find? Yeah, no, I mean, you know, of course, every musician they could find is not the case because, you know, they're not that big, but, but I think they did target um, a certain amount of influential musicians to try to, um, because the CIA, you know, they say they want to control our hearts and minds. They can't control us physically because they're not big enough to control, you know, uh, 250, 300 million people, you know, whatever the population in the U.S. is, about 280 million people. But they, uh, so they want to control our hearts and minds. And they also want to have influence overseas too, of course. So, um, yeah, with musicians, you know, the I just, I found evidence with, uh, re regarding John Lennon, for example, now um, there was a, a top uh, biographer of, uh, I mean, there was a top investigator of John Lennon, um, who uh, was a lawyer, Fenton Bressler, who, who wrote the book, Who Killed uh, John Lennon. And so he started investigating John Lennon's murder uh, in 1980. He, he investigated for seven years. He was a uh, columnist for a top daily British newspaper along with being a, you know, a, a banister, they call him there, you know, an attorney, a British lawyer. And um, so he found, he, he got, he filed freedom of information requests, got lots of FBI documents, you know, two or 300 FBI documents. They referred to CIA work and CIA documents. But when he tried to get CIA documents, I believe he only got a few pages total, but a lot of the FBI documents referred to many more pages, and um, but that's you know all he could get, um, and so he showed the evidence that yes, yes the CIA had uh, trained, uh, you know, Mark Mark David Chapman to um, they you know, basically they work with police for one thing. That's been well documented. That it goes from it's a huge hierarchy. When the CIA was founded in 1947 with the National Security Act of 1947. It made the CIA director the uh, super, the director and supervisor of all other 14 plus intelligence agencies, Naval Intelligence, Army Intelligence, FBI, NSA, et cetera. And, um, and then underneath them, uh, there was police, you know, local police. Now, um, there's also police intelligence units. And when you uh, analyze all these different operations, such as the operations that I analyzed against the Black Panthers, and you look at the FBI documents regarding them, such as um, the, you know, the basically uh, activists broke into an FBI office in 1971 and stole thousands of FBI documents and from the media Pennsylvania uh, FBI office. And they spread them to the press. Um, 
and they, you know, compiled them in books, et cetera. And um, so the COINTELPRO papers, that book uh, shows by Ward Churchill and Jim Vanderwall and the agents of repression both use those documents and they show how uh, basically former CIA, um, supposedly former CIA could become directors of police intelligence as happened in New York City um, under the head of the Bureau of Special Services, which was uh, New York Police Intelligence, was a former, you know, formerly part of the CIA. Um, other people, um, such as FBI agents, would go down and work as also police intelligence. And so they, they'd have two titles. One is, uh, you know, agent of FBI, and another is agent of, uh, of New York Police Department. And that was found with um, a, a, a police agent who was caught on the scene of uh, Biggie Smalls' death, the rapper Biggie Smalls. And um, I, I mentioned that not because Biggie is a, was a political musician, but Tupac was a very political musician. Um, his family were all leading Black Panthers. He was a one-time leader of the, of the um, uh, New African Panthers, which was active in eight cities around the country and was working with the adult um, you know, activists of the New African People's Organization who were former Black Panthers. And so the FBI documents that were stolen in 1971 showed this massive targeting of the Black Panthers nationwide and targeting of, of leftists in general around the country starting in the 1950s. And uh, it showed that, that about 90, anywhere between 97 and 99% of the activities of the FBI were targeting leftist activists, anti-war activists, civil rights activists, um, particularly brutally target, targeting the Black Panthers, targeting American Indian activists, Puerto Rican activists, et cetera. And uh, so this is you know, what was going on and uh, the overlap and the hierarchy go from police intelligence, sometimes overlapping, as I said, with FBI. Um, FBI working closely with the CIA, but the CIA basically um, overseeing it all. And, um, and that's the way, way it works. And so with um, Mark David Chapman, you have this situation of a Atlanta police officer giving Mark David Chapman the hollow point bullets that killed, that helped kill John Lennon. Um, that police officer also trained Mark David Chapman in shooting. And, um, and then you have a, um, the, the doorman of the Dakota apartment building where um, John Lennon was, was murdered. You know, um, uh, they say the best evidence is that he contributed to the assassinations to make sure it was successful. But he was a former um, CIA agent himself. And he was part of the Cuba squad that um, you know, did go and, and uh, try to invade Cuba with the Bay of Pigs. Um, he was Cuban and- um, they, I, didn't, they had, I didn't know he had Bay of Pigs involvement. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, it's, my, it's the best evidence of that. And, and that came out in a, um, a book by a um, heralded music you know, critic in, in England who had written several, uh, you know, uh, critically acclaimed music books in England. He then wrote a book about John Lennon's life and death that went into all this detail about um, the doorman at Dakota that night. Um, so it's, his name's Jose Perdomo, but it's uh, Jose Sanjarinus, and there's another middle name and then Perdomo. So um, that's, yeah, that's some of the evidence about John Lennon and his assassination. And so what I um, also show in, in my research around this 
is the fact that, um, for example, um, Ernest Hemingway's uh, editor and friend, A.E. Hotchner, um, wrote a, you know, helped Ernest Hemingway with his books, but then he wrote some of his own books. He did some, some real good oral history, um, such as one about an oral history book about the Rolling Stones and the, and the whole era of the uh, music scene around that time, the 60s and 70s. And it was called Blown Away. And uh, in that book, he says that, um, uh, I forget his name all of a sudden, but the MK Ultra assistant director, Robert Lashbrook, in 1965, in early 1965, brought over loads of LSD money and agents to London and instructed the agents to put get as in as many musicians' hands as possible. So that's at the beginning of 65. A little later, a few months later in 65, John Lennon and George Harrison are with their, their partners having, a di having dinner with... Um, this uh, you know, George Harrison's dentist and his his uh, Playboy bunny you know girlfriend, and uh, they're having dinner there. And at the end of the dinner, and this is this has been published in, in a number of interviews, of, you know, of Cynthia Lennon and uh, and George Harrison's um, spouse. I mean, his girlfriend at the time, Patty Boyd. I'll say the same thing about this. But basically, so they're having dinner, and then they um, and they say we got we got to go because we're trying to catch a friend's band who's playing for the first time and in uh, London and they're like, no, you can't go yet. You have to try this delicious coffee we have. And they drink the coffee and then they say, oh, you can't go now because we dosed your coffee with the LSD with that, you know? And uh, George Harrison said, what's LSD? Cause it wasn't popular in, in Britain at that time. Like it was, it was already getting popular in the United States. And John Lennon was furious. He's, he's like, you know, you spiked our drinks with LSD. And um, so they basically uh, dosed him with acid to introduce to him for the first time. And, and I argue like, why would a dentist do that? Why would a dentist, um, you know, risk his reputation, risk getting sued and all that over something like this, unless he thought he had, you know, um, he, he was an informant. He had to be an yeah, informant. He, he had to be tied. Yeah. Unless he was working with, yeah, the CIA's Robert Lashbrook or, you know, British intelligence who were working with U.S. intelligence on these projects. And so, um, like the Tavistock Institute, for example, was working with, with U.S. intelligence on these kinds of projects. Is, uh, but anyway, so this is the way they had their first hits of acid. And the best that, you know, evidence is that, yeah, it was likely part of, of Robert Lashbrook's plan. And the same thing happened with um, Mick Jagger of Rolling Stones. And Mick Jagger and John Lennon were very anti-Vietnam War. Um, at, you know, as was Brian Jones. And so Mick Jagger really, he actually held out from also taking acid. He never, he didn't take acid um, as of 1967. And um, in comes this guy who is a, uh, he's got several different names. Um, I believe his name at this time was uh, Zimmerman. I forget, I forget his, his Schneiderman. His name was Schneiderman, David Schneiderman at this time. But so David Schneiderman comes out in the Daily Mail newspaper, which is the you know um, daily newspaper, like one, one of the most respected newspapers that some people say it's conservative, but conservative or liberal, it's very respected for its uh, research. But the Daily Mail came out um, with an article saying that uh, Schneid, David Schneiderman was found to be working for both the FBI and British MI5, which is British FBI. Um, when in 1967, he, he brought loads of drugs to a party of uh, Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones and convinced 
uh, Mick Jagger to try acid for the first time. A few hours after um, you know, Mick Jagger was tripping, the police came in and raided the party, let Schneiderman out with a briefcase full of drugs, but arrested um, you know, uh, Keith Richards and Mick Jagger, thus promoting the fact that Mick Jagger you know, takes acid. Um, when really it was just his first time, he was convinced in, into trying it for the first time. And, um, and so that's some of the ways they, they, they manipulate these musicians to inadvertently promote these drugs because the, uh, later people convinced John Lennon and George Harrison to try acid again when they were touring the United States and they saw in the United States that was a big thing, acid, and you know, like everyone's doing it, quote unquote. But you know, it was really David Crosby and, and some other musicians that, that convinced John Lennon and George Harrison to trip again in the United States. Um, and so, but in the U.S., there's also a lot of connections between some of these musicians who were doing, uh, willingly working with the CIA because, because of the fact that their families came from either, you know, the military intelligence and or were part of the oligarchy in the United States. David Van Cortlandt Crosby, for example, comes from the family that uh, Van Cortlandt Expressway in, in New York is named after. Van Cortlandt Park of thousands of acres of park are named after. He, his family were the Rensselaers and the Van Cortlands who were um, part of the oligarchy. They were incredibly wealthy. And his family was also military intelligence. And um, best evidence is, is that he was doing their bidding in convincing John Lennon to uh, try, try acid and George Harrison to try acid a second time. Um, and so this is you know, some of the ways that they promoted drugs through, they manipulated these young musicians to inadvertently promote drugs. But then the best evidence shows that the pattern is when they start sobering up again um, and getting more into activism, like John Lennon, I said, was very into Vietnam War, they were done away with. And that's what happened with John Lennon at the end of his life. He, he was sobering up. They'd also convinced him um, to try heroin and inadvertently promote heroin for a, a period of time. But then he, he went and just spent time trying to raise his kids, sobered up a good bit. And he came out of that, um, that kind of uh, hibernation you know, musically. He came out with two albums. He said he was going to lead a uh, Teamsters uh, protest in San Francisco. And he had already put out a press release about that. Um, and so he's getting back into activism right when um, Reagan and Bush were coming into office you know, during the 1980 Reagan presidential win with George Bush as his vice presidential running mate. And so he threatened to oppose the, the policies of Reagan and Bush. And either way, the uh, CIA had worked on getting Mark David Chapman um, placed. You know, he threw drugs and hypnosis and uh, this Atlanta police officer training him in shooting, giving him holly bullets. Etc. with the help of uh, Jose Perdomo, you know, in, in murdering John Lennon. When it comes to Vietnam, what, why do you think that Vietnam was such a prize objective? I've always heard people speculate the idea that it was because like the heroin triangle that's there, like all of that. But I mean, there's like plenty of evidence when we talk about like a, when, when we talk about like a doped up society. I mean, this is proof right here about the whenever you hear that idea of like all they want is a doped up society i mean this is prime evidence giving them drugs to be doped up and it and, and it was to deter from activism i mean operation midnight climax the whole point of that was drugging johns at random you know, restaurants or whatever to spark up hate against the hippies that were protesting the vietnam war and then people associated the hippies with lsd and they associated these people freaking out in restaurants 
at, with LSD or just drugs in general. And then they were like, okay, then it must be the hippies. We have to protest against them. And the hippies stopped protesting in Vietnam. I mean, they still kind of did it, but the activism slowed down. And then we just continued to stay in Vietnam. But I mean, it's very manipulative, not just in the aspect of using drugs, but I mean, if you explain it like how I just did, people are like, all right, that sounds far-fetched. But an easy way to do it is imagine all the experiences you hear about people taking LSD. It's a great mind-bending, altering drug. They'll literally give you an experience that it's hard to put into words. Imagine someone figured that out and just goes, how about we ramp it up? And instead of using this mind-altering drug, we shatter the shit out of it. And that's where you have the CIA's influence into it. You have the idea. It makes it easier for people that haven't seen the documents or any of this type of stuff to understand it more. Because when you start talking about this, this to the general public, like I know what it is, but to the general public, they're just like, that sounds crazy. It doesn't sound like our government. It's like, yeah, because they don't want you to know. And they've been keeping these documents on lock for the longest time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, with with uh, Vietnam, obviously, it was right. You know, part of it was. Uh, they're right next to Laos and um, the other countries, you know, as part of the golden triangle for heroin. It was the best uh, area in the world. Um, there's two best areas in the world for heroin production. That was the golden triangle and the golden crescent for heroin production because of the poppy fields grew best. Heroin, you know, is derived from the poppy plant. You know, first they, they turn into, they get opium, turn into morphine and or heroin. And uh, they, the best growing places for that is this Himalayan mountain range. It goes from, um, I think it's the Himalayas, but whatever it's that mountain range, it goes from the Vietnam area down to the Afghanistan area or up to the, yeah, I think, I think my geography is right, or maybe up to the uh, you know, Afghanistan area. And so the, the goal, that's where the Golden Triangle and the Golden Crescent are for the best poppy fields in the world. And um, all along that mountain range, and uh, so that's why India had, was you know, constantly controlled by the British and the British East India Company for uh, cultivating poppies and opium around there, which is, you know, was incredibly lucrative crop, but also uh, was used to sedate, divide, and oppress the masses. And um, I, I say that because that, that's what Attorney General Ramsey Clark told me in 1991. I talked to him right after a uh, conference, a political conference in Baltimore, where I was living at the time. I was working as a drug and alcohol counselor at the time. And uh, I said, what do you think the government uses drugs for? And he says, well, I think they use it to, to, to you know, sedate and divide the masses. And um, he was a you know, former US Attorney General of the United States um, during the 1960s under Johnson, I believe. And um, so he just became more of an activist after he, he uh, got out of that position. And um, so I, I just say also oppress the masses because, um, well, for one thing, as we talked about, you know, during the Vietnam War, I have, have in my film how Judy Woodruff um, narrated a documentary about uh, the CIA and drug trafficking uh, during the Vietnam War. And so she interviewed loads of people that were in all parts of that, that pipeline of, of getting the um, opium from the poppy fields in Vietnam, near around the Vietnam Golden Triangle area into the United States and other, other parts of the world, but mostly into the United States they talk about. And um, she, she showed the CIA documents saying, yes, they were trafficking you know, heroin from the Vietnam area into the United States. And, uh, and they also just 
tons of people talking about their role in that and what they saw and what, you know, the guy that was flying it and all that stuff. And um, so, you know, I have part of that in my film, Drugs as Weapons Against Us. Um, I also have CIA whistleblower um, John Stockwell, who I saw at a different, um, you know, he, he gave a political talk in Baltimore at that around 1990. And I talked with him and he, he told me all about the CIA. He was a uh, CIA whistleblower who told me all about his his fellow um, CIA agents flying out of Vietnam with heroin into the United States. Um, and so, you know, that's just the way it worked there. And now you see a duplication of that in Afghanistan. And it's no coincidence that Afghanistan war and the Vietnam war, the two longest wars in US history, because that's an incredibly lucrative crop for one thing. So the oligarchs make tons of money off of that um, because they, you know, the best evidence is the history of the CIA is it was, is that it was populated with either the wealthiest families themselves, you know, were in key posts of, of the CIA or their, their lawyers, you know, John, you know, Alan Dulles was a lawyer for the Rockefellers and JP Morgan interests and also for the Bushes, et cetera. And of course, George Bush uh, senior was a one-time CIA director. So um, they made a lot of money off the uh, opium trafficking and heroin trafficking, uh, but they also used it to, um, because when you get heroin into a, a community, it destroys that community. Now, not just the people that take the heroin, but the families that are dealing with their loved one who, who's developed a you know, heroin or opium or opiate problem with the painkillers during the painkiller epidemic. Um, and uh, it also just destroys the community because uh, to get the drug, you gotta you know steal and uh, you know rob people and all, and so the crime goes up in those communities. And so um, I just show a lot of the evidence in my book and film also that they were directing it towards, particularly towards minority communities, but then they expanded it out into just communities in general that they wanted to target regarding um, you know destabilizing communities around the country um, and. Uh, and you know, besides you know, hurting the civil rights movement, when they targeted certain drugs such as uh, acid and um, and other drugs and speed and all into the activist communities, it hurt hurt those activist minds and made it harder for them to do good work around uh, anti-war activism, around, you know, anti-Vietnam War activism. I don't, the the, uh, the anti-war activism is one of the most difficult things to try and understand. Um, when it comes to just why, I mean, I get it from like a government standpoint, if you say like the government obviously wanted a war in Vietnam, but they go to such extents where it's, I mean, obviously this is where it borders human ethics um, with the legal rights of a human being. That's why there's a lot of people that, you know, talk, use their activism to talk about the covert abilities of the CIA, but there's just so much we don't know, like how far does it go? I mean, you wrote something about um, Tupac you turned into a film. I mean, are you saying Tupac? Um, I haven't, I'm sorry, I haven't read it, but when it comes to Tupac, are you saying that the FBI got Tupac killed? Because that's a long, like controversial topic and kind of somehow lingers into conspiracy realms. Yeah, well, Tupac, as I said, Tupac's whole, his mother was a one-time leader of the Harlem Black Panthers. His um, father, his biological father was a New Jersey Black Panthers. Um, Christian Godfather was Geronimo Pratt, leader of the Los Angeles Black Panthers. Um, he was, you know, as I said, one time um, leader of the New African Panthers, which were active in eight cities. And this was in um, 
around 1988 or so in 89. Um, he was a leader of that group. And so, um, a, an FBI whistleblower, um, Wes Swearingen, came out with a book, FBI Secrets, you know, like a, his, his memoir about his work. And he said that this, the FBI's counterintelligence program, which were targeting the Black Panthers, um, even though it was closed down in 1971 when it was being investigated by the, you know, you know, the um, U.S. Senate um, after the activists stole his FBI documents, they continued the, the same project. You know, um, counterintelligence program projects under different names, he said. And um, he knows because he was part of the counterintelligence program at one point in Chicago, as, you know, Wes Swearingen, I, I believe, I believe it was Chicago who was part of, it might have been LA, I'm sorry about that. But he was part of the, you know, he was pleased, he was part of the FBI's counterintelligence program and he had friends who were still in it. And so he says he knows that from his friends that were still in the FBI that that project, you know, COINTELPRO program, that program, continue at least until the mid-1990s. So here's a whistleblower saying the, the program continued. If it's going to continue targeting um, Black Panthers and Black Panther leaders, and um, my dog wants to get be part of this interview, if you don't mind. He's, he's just going to say hi here. There he is. Well, he's down now. Anyway, um, he. Um, so we know that it's still going on from this whistleblower. And we know that Tupac was trying to replicate the Black Panthers with the new African Panthers. He's, I have him saying in an interview in, a, in my film. Um, and so, of course, they're going to target a national you know, uh, leader, Black leaders trying to replicate the Black Panthers. And you know, this is right before became, Tupac became a rap star. He was 17, 18 years old when he was leading the new African Panthers. And then at 19, he, he got asked to travel with the Grammy-nominated group Digital Underground. And he travels around the world with them and produces, you know, wrote some songs with them that came out of one of their albums. And then, of course, he came out with his own, you know, solo um, CD um, by 1991. So, of course, they were targeting him. They were going to target him. Um, so it's just it's just obvious kind of stuff. I mean, you see that in my film Drugs as Weapons Against Us and it, the evidence is all there. Um, so you know, why, but why would the CIA get involved in targeting Tupac? And that's what I, I suggest is also became the case. The reason is, is because Tupac was, was only pretending to be this thug, quote unquote thug, um, in order to, uh, you know, or gangster rapper or whatever, to, to, in order to appeal to gangs and politicize them. It was part of the uh, Bloods versus Crips peace truce movement that his Black Panther extended family had engendered in Los Angeles. He got the Bloods and Crips uh, groups in, Los, in certain communities in Los Angeles to call peace truces and instead, and this is uh, right before the uh, Rodney King beating that was made famous when they caught you know, police beating Rob, Rodney King on film. And then there was LA riots after that when the uh, police officers got found not guilty of, of their assault on Rodney King. Um, so, uh, Tupac uh, pretended to be this gangster type in order to appeal to his gangs and then help politicize them. And he went to gang peace truce picnics and meetings and and, caught, and had the uh, you know gang leaders shake hands and agree to terms of peace and to do less damage to their communities with, and things like that. And he got a number of gangs to stop drug dealing. First in Los Angeles, um, you know, that, that became part of this gang peace truce movement and then throughout California and then spread all the way to New York City, where even the Latino gangs were convinced uh, as part of this movement 
by um, people I interviewed, such as uh, Panama Alba, who was a former Young Lord. The Young Lords were the Latino versions of the Black Panthers, uh, you know, and um, they were, you know, they were trained and they followed uh, Bobby Seale, you know, and Huey Newton, well, Bobby Seale especially, but they were, Bobby Seale and Huey Newton were the founders of the National Black Panthers, you know, Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. And so um, when the Young Lords came up and, um, you know, and tried to replicate the Black Panthers, uh, they were very successful, very active in a number of cities around the country. And in New York City, Panama Alba was a, um, a high up and was a very activist you know, uh, Young Lord. And so when I was going to graduate school in New York City um, in the mid 1990s, I interviewed Panama Alba. I interviewed the uh, head of the uh, Latin Kings, uh, King, you know, Antonio King Tone Fernandez. You got some connections, yeah. dude. Holy crap. Uh, I just, I just cold called people and went to conferences and just tried, just kept interviewing people, you know, and uh, it, it worked, you know, I said, you know, I'd started my own newspaper over at um, Columbia University um, grad school and uh, got teachers to buy it around the country and activists to buy it around the country. So I was selling between three and 6,000 uh, these activist newspapers around the country. And I was really friendly with one of my professors, uh, Richard Cloward of uh, Piven and Cloward fame, who wrote some great sociology books that were really great activist books. Um, and so, so King Tone told me about what they're doing. You know, I mean, it was, it was pretty well known. It was out in other media too. A book was written about it by, um, that was published by Columbia University Press about the Latin Kings that about their transformation into an activist group. And they changed their name to the Almighty Latin King and Queen Nation. Um, and, and so they were massively targeted by uh, police intelligence and FBI for doing that, for, for converting to activism. And um, so, you know, this was all part of that, that black, you know, Tupac and his Black Panther families, you know, um, movement of, you know, getting, you know, converting gangs. And, um, and so for that, that was a huge threat because when a lot, when the Latin Kings, for example, just them alone, not to mention all the other, you know, black gangs and, you know, other Latino groups, when they stopped, uh, you know, drug dealing and got more involved in activism, that was, was documented about the Latin Kings and the Almighty Latin King Queen Nation, you know, transformation. That took, they were 3,000 strong in New York City. That took 3,000, you know, or almost 3,000 drug dealers off the street. And the way that then, you know, all those drugs not being dealt as much in New York City was a huge blow to the profits of the uh, CIA. It was a huge blow to the profits of the banks that laundered that money. And I show the documentation of that, yes, blanks, uh, banks launder loads, I mean, billions of dollars of drug money that's been documented in many mainstream you know, articles. And uh, United Nations experts on that issue have, have, told, have talked about that. We're talking about anywhere from 500 billion to a trillion dollars of, of laundered drug money you know, worldwide. And the United States is the biggest launderer of, of drug money. Um, so that, that was Tupac's biggest threat was take getting all that money, drug dealing money um, off the street and away you know, out of that profit, out of the CIA and the oligarchs hands. And so that was a huge thing. Do you think that if like I, I would probably say or make the statement that I think most people probably have very low trust in the government as of today. And I think that 
that looking for a flaw or looking to find out this information only happens when you're not dealing with a crisis on hand. And that's what you can kind of look at as it's when we talk about like profits for the CIA or want, wanting them to want this violence to go on gang wars and all this stuff. It sounds crazy unless you know the aspect of then they lose funding in so many different ways. I mean, the idea of the government always pushing for more funding and an idea is because we need it because we can implement more protection and all this type of stuff. But is that protection really needed? I mean, is it not inflated in some situations? Is something else not causing that? I mean, we know that there's crime that happens, but at what scale and who's also involved in that as well, too? I mean, we talk about the government's influence and stuff. Imagine if they're the ones causing the issues. They're the ones rising people up and causing them to fight amongst each other, creating gang violence where there necessarily might not be gang violence. Well, that's that's another point that, um, that uh, I did write a a little, just you know, a little bit about too, or a bit about in um, the FBI war on Tupac Shakur and black leaders and drugs as weapons against us, is that the the powers that be these these wealthiest families that that made themselves the head heads of the CIA and, and U.S. intelligence, they were incredibly racist, incredibly prejudiced in general, incredibly prejudiced. That's their history. I mean, um, the eugenics movement, which I touch on in in um, Drugs as weapons against us. I, I have a few pages on it in my book. I have a, a mention of it in my film with a, maybe a few more words on it. That was the most genocidally, you know, prejudiced uh, movement in our country, and maybe, you know, uh, leading up to World War II, of course, with um, the Germany's Holocaust and all that. Um, you know, these same American oligarchs actually funded the machinations of, uh, you know, the rise of, of uh, Hitler and the rise of the Nazis. But that's, you know, another story, which I get much more into in shots, eugenics, the pandemics. Um, nonetheless, it's, um, that's what, that's their story. That's their history. And that's why they would want what you just, just described is these gangs of people of color fighting each other. And um, instead of trying to, you know, look at the government as oppressing them and trying to change things for the better. So yeah, that's a, a major aspect of things, but, and so you just have to you know, look at history much closer um, and look at, you know, books such as um, Edwin Black's War Against the Weak about the eugenics movement. Edwin Black was, was a Chicago Tribune, uh, you know, acclaimed columnist who uh, has his books translated into a hundred different languages. Um, he's, uh, you know, so, his books about eugenics are pretty definitive. You know, they're considered the most definitive books on eugenics in the, in the world. I'm going to ask this question. It's probably going to relate more to your new film. Um, when it comes to, I mean, in the, the pandemic that we just basically went through, the one thing I never saw in the news, and I, I think I've just recently saw a CBS story on it, but they have never talked about this ever. There was over 100,000 deaths of opioids in the last year alone between 19s and 49 year olds and they never talk about it and people suggest like i, I suggest it's because the media they're sponsored by specific pharmaceutical companies and big pharma and if you go in depth on that stuff you don't really they kind of like i've seen interviews with gerald posner talking about his new book and he's completely 180 on the conspiracy stuff with jfk but when he talks about like the pharmaceutical things they'll let him go in on it but as soon as he starts going in depth they immediately go well sorry that's all we got and then they cut away from him and go away and i'm just like even the people that they have on all the time, they don't necessarily want you opening up this loophole. Mm -hmm. Right. No, I, I don't know the exact numbers, but I did hear that, yes, a record number of people 
uh, overdosed on opiates during the pandemic. And, um, and it, it's obviously partly because they, they wouldn't allow in-person 12-step uh, meetings. You know, as someone who I started as an addictions counselor in 1989, and now I do psychotherapy for a living as my day job, one off form, you know, really specializing in trauma, but all forms of, you know, different mental illness. Um, and, uh, but I had, you know, decade or two at least of uh, history doing addictions counseling, you know, along with mental health counseling. And uh, yeah, the, you know, the best, the, I mean, the part of the recipe for recovery is, is uh, peer support and 12 step meetings are the best meetings you can find because they're everywhere. And Narcotics Anonymous and Alcoholics Anonymous are, you know, essential for recovery. And when you lose that, because they close down all the NA and AA meetings, uh, sure, um, all these addicts trying to, you know, gain recovery and long-term recovery lost that support and had to try to do it by Zoom, but it's not the same thing as in person. You know, it's not, you know, hugs, hugging, you know, getting hugs are part of it all. And you can't hug someone through Zoom harder to get to know them as well through zoom and um you know zoom telehealth meetings and so yeah a lot of people lost their recovery and um and died and um sadly enough you know the uh fda um were corrupted by some of the pharma companies johnson johnson was one of them that was you know selling opiates um of course and they made their vaccine too but um you know there was you know purdue pharma and and several other pharmaceutical companies that were involved in the opiate industry that they made tons of profits but they also um you know in allowing oxycontin and all that um but yeah it's uh very sad it's very sad that that was a byproduct of it all well for a small percentage of the population the elite status people i would say they made a lot of good profit during this times where everyone else was experiencing hardship. And it makes you question, well, how deep does it go? And we mentioned a few things already, but media influence. I, I mean, I always knew about it, but like we mentioned the 1095, 360 form, I'm like, that's where it started. It didn't just stem with the JFK assassination. It stems all over the board. I mean, and that's a document that we have that people say, oh yeah, the media is influenced. That was, that's a conspiracy. No, it is. We have one document from a long time ago that proves that, but we see it when we know there's issues in our town that are going on and they're reporting something completely different. I mean, I noticed that with Ukraine. They were talking trash on Ukraine before Russia went to war with them or Russia started invading them. Then they're immediately on the other side where it's just like, does anybody else like for me, I just want transparency in it. I mean, be honest all the way through and through. I feel like people would accept that more rather than finding out the lies later. Yeah. Yeah. So part of my projects is always a section on, on the media. I feel like that's essential. And uh, that's why we do need alternative media like your own and, you know, all, all these all these different podcasts are exposing things beyond mainstream media. Um, and so, you know, I just, I quote people like the um, Ben Bagdickian Pulitzer Prize winner for who uh, broke the Vietnam War um, Pentagon Papers stuff um, for the Washington Post and then became direct, um, director of the University of California Berkeley School of Journalism. Now he, he wrote a book called The Media Monopoly where he documents the way that um, the media is interlocked, the boards, you know, the the board of directors of the New York Times and Time Magazine and all these different media you know, companies are interlocked. I mean, they share boards of directors with defense contractors, 
pharmaceutical companies, banks, etc. And uh, that's how they help control by by corporate law. They must do, you know, not affect negatively affect the profit margin of the companies that they share boards of directors with. And so, of course, when a defense contracting director is also the director of a media company, you know, that that profits uh, increase during wars. And so, yes, the uh, media companies should not be anti, you know, should not uh, report anti-war stuff. And that's part of the way it works. And the same thing with the drug companies. If they're going to make tons of money off of certain um, drugs and or shots, you know, it's uh, the media companies aren't supposed to negatively affect their profit margin by um, reporting the opposite. So it's really, you know, it's uh, by corporate law, they're doing some of the things they're doing. Um, and that's, you know, they can use that excuse because they really, you know, there's, there's other motives for some of these people, you know. Do you think ever the, I guess the reliance of power, do you think it'll ever shift to like independent sources, not like independent like this, but like independent, like streaming services, for instance, like I noticed Netflix and some uh, like Hulu, they'll have a documentary about something that is like the government trafficking of drugs or something of that sort. But I never see that like popularized on the television. I never see it playing on a, on a channel or anything like that, which I start wondering, like, does Netflix and all these programs, are they going to be the source where they can actually get the documentaries like Oliver Stone's film? I found in the NSA archives documents on Oliver Stone saying platoon was an issue, you know, like that look makes the government look bad. And I know they're influenced into scripts. Independence Day, for instance, um, they influenced that script. They wanted a military person killing the aliens at the ending, not a civilian. And then they said, if you're going to blow up the White House, you have to blow up every other national monument around the around the world just so we don't look weak. Like there's just these weird things where it's like you get the small propaganda, then the extreme propaganda where you start wondering everything that we're watching now, are we even able to pick up the propaganda anymore? Are we able to notice between the lines? Are we losing that aspect of critical thinking? I mean, a lot of people, and I'm not trying to relate this to the pandemic, but a lot of people did stuff without any clear evidence of why you should be doing something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, um, I agree. They, they just, they do have so much influence over these movies. Oliver Stone has done some great work um, in opposition of the oligarchs. Um, in terms of exposing <clears throat> their their assassination of John F. Kennedy. And um, I'm glad that some of these um, kind of alternative sites have at least shown, you know, some of his films. Um, the, he, he had two films. Um, I, I reviewed both of them for a whistleblowing, a CIA whistleblowing magazine called Covert Action Magazine. It used to be called Covert Action Quarterly. And so um, in the 1990s, I wrote a... Um, an expose on the FBI warrant that became the FBI warrant to Fox Shakur and Black leaders. Um, and then in the last, you know, five years or so, I've been writing, you know, a lot more articles for them. Um, but um, so I, I wrote a, you know, a review of uh, the two films. So one was a two hour film and I can't remember, that was on a bigger platform, um, you know, about uh, JFK, Destiny Betrayed, I think it was called, um, or that was the first one was it had a different title, actually. Revisited is the two-hour version of Betrayed. Yeah, the two-hour version was the Destiny Betrayed, and the four-hour version was Through the Looking Glass, and I believe it was, maybe it was the other way around. But it's the other way around. Way. Yeah, it's the other way around. Thank you. So, um, uh, so you know, I, I think they did great stuff. And now, obviously, the, the four-hour one was, you could say it was on a, a more alternative platform because it was longer and probably was, I guess it was, it was very long, but um, 
it's still harder, even even amongst that group, the Netflixes and the other ones, um, they don't put out as much of the uh, stuff like my film, Drugs as Weapons Against Us, is on a lot of digital platforms, but um, it's on, you know, been on Tubi, it's been on Amazon Prime, and the competition does help me get the word out, but uh, not Netflix. Netflix, I think, is more a little more controlled, a little more censored, sensorial, I'll say. Um, and so even amongst the alternatives, there's, there's they, you know, the oligarchs try to buy up or control as many of the alternatives to you know, uh, stop things from getting out there. And that's what we're facing. That's what we're dealing with. But thankfully, just more and more alternative channels are coming out and, um, you know, and I'm getting, uh, you know, shots, for example, is on Tubi, though it's not on other platforms now and more platforms are gonna open up with uh, shots in September. And, uh, and so, yeah, it's helpful. Thank you. I'm glad we have these alternatives to, to get more of our information out there. I do recommend um, checking out your film. I'm actually going to order it and watch it because um, it sounds interesting. And you have a lot of information that I really appreciate you sharing on my show and everything. Um, is there a place where people can find your links, um, anything you want to promote, your books, your Twitter handle, um, if you want to say them off real quick, and I'll make sure I link them in the description. Sure, thanks. So you can find all my work at drugsasweapons.com, uh, drugsasweapons.com. Um, and there's uh, more links to the uh, movie websites from there, but that has most everything at drugsasweapons.com. It's also called johnpodash.com. It's got a bunch of different um, names that, you know, for one website, shotsmovie.com, for example. But uh Yes, you can find most of my work there. And so I really appreciate you having me on, uh, Robbie, and I appreciate you, know, you talking openly about all this stuff. And I hope, uh, you know, more people get exposed to this information and start acting on it and helping change society for the better for the 99% of us. You know? I just thought of one more question, but Kurt Cobain. That's okay. Sure. Kurt Cobain. Yeah. Government? No. Yeah, and so he was, I, I showed the evidence that he was targeted by U.S. intelligence um, in a similar way. Uh, you know, he's, he was called the John Lennon of his generation, and uh, I found, you know, a lot of just similar ways they targeted John Lennon and Kurt Cobain. Um, and the reason is because what they I found is that they psychologically profile uh, some of these musicians to see how, if they, you know, can target them, how they can uh, manipulate them to promote drugs and then when they start sobering up though and they lose control over them they stop you know they they do away with them and so the pattern did fit Kurt Cobain because um, he was you know brilliant uh, super creative um, singer you know songwriter who was also st statedly anti-capitalist I mean he you know he made fun of uh you know, he, he would only get on the cover of Rolling Stone. He would only allow himself to be on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine. He said if he was allowed to wear a T-shirt that says, uh, main, you know, corporate magazines still suck or something like that. Um, and so uh, he, he, he's just, he, even in a biography about Nirvana before Kurt Cobain died, he said he had wanted to put all kinds of anarchist essays on the cover of his uh with 30 million units selling uh, Nevermind album. Uh, and he, he went to put these anarchist essays with talk about how to create your own bomb and how to, you know, um, you know, oppose the government and everything else. But he said he thought he'd wait till he becomes more popular and then people might take it more seriously. 
So that that was he was a, he was a radical activist actually at heart, and he did you know support some good causes um, with some concerts that were you know he didn't he didn't talk a lot about but um, so here he was rising up on the charts with this incredible album Nevermind, and uh, all of a sudden into his life comes this woman Courtney Love, and so they date a few times and um, she quickly becomes pregnant with his kid. Um, he, you know, he does um, the right thing and says, okay, well, I'll marry you, but only with a prenuptial agreement. And, um, and people around them in oral histories about uh, Seattle and friends of, you know, of, of Kurt said that she basically, you know, he had this massive stomach problem where he, which he couldn't find a cure for. And he was, you know, his diaries talk about it. Um, he talks about in interviews and, but that, that heroin was, he tried heroin a few times, but, you know, didn't get into it. But all those people, you know, people around him said that she got him to use him into using heroin regularly for the first time in his life. And it did cure his, his stomach problem for a bit. But then finally, um, a year before his death, he found a medical cure for his, his uh, stomach problem. And he said, said in interviews, and I have those interviews in my film, where he just felt, oh, finally, this is great. I'm finally over this stomach problem. And, um, and so when, you know, a month before his death, he was in a Rome hospital and the, his blood came back as having no illicit drugs in his system whatsoever, okay? Um, he was in that hospital because, um, you know, at that time, you know, you, you have his lawyer saying that he was looking for a, a divorce lawyer. He was cutting, uh, Courtney Love out of his will. He was divorcing her. Um, he, they were estranged, but he wanted to see his daughter. So when he was doing his tour in Rome and throughout Europe, um, he had Courtney Love bring over their daughter to see his daughter. And uh, she was on a prescription of Rohypnol, which are roofies. And um, she, uh, you know, apparently had put these roofies in his drink so that when he had a drink, he almost died. He went into a coma. Um, and, you know, so she, it was her prescription. The doctor said he wasn't suicidal. He didn't appear suicidal. He it just, you know, it was this apparently accidental overdose of these, uh, roofies. She pretends like it was a suicide attempt. Um, you know, the best evidence is, is that she did that to him because everyone knows that you lose memory of everything that happens when you're on, when you take roofies. And that's so why they use those roofies to, you know, um, sadly, you know, drug, you know, creepy guys use it to drug women apparently um so and they're illegal in the united states they're only, but they are they're legal they're illegal in the united states and legal in britain where where uh courtney love got them they're they're legal in britain as sleeping pills so you know um and so when everyone you know us people in the addictions field know that in order to be a heroin addict to have a heroin problem you have to be using every day whilst you go into massive withdrawal symptoms and he had no, and heroin stays in your system about three to five days at least, you know, opiates and uh, stay in your system that long. And he had no illicit substances whatsoever in his bloodstream when he should have had, if he was really had a heroin problem at that time, a month before his death, um, he should have had something like that in the system. And so um, he said in interviews that I'm, I've sobered up, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm done with heroin. I haven't, you know, used for a long time now. And, um, and so the, the blood tests support that. And 
Um, and so, you know, the best evidence is, is that the, you know, is that Courtney Love aided U.S. intelligence in doing away with Kurt Cobain. Because while they were, while Kurt, Courtney, you know, Kurt Cobain did have that heroin problem, uh, heroin use went up dramatically every year, okay? Um, five, you know, like a major percentage, uh, you know, of, of he influenced the American population into using more heroin each year, he, you know, of his stardom, 1991, 92, 93, um, they went up and it continued going up in the 1990s. They had to do away with him because he threatened to, to promote um, abstinence and to promote sobriety. And that's the same, you know, as it was with John Lennon and, and Tupac and Jimi Hendrix, sadly enough. And uh, because, you know, they wanted to use these these musicians to promote the drug use, but then when they sobered up and threatened to promote, you know, left left wing activism, anti war, anti racist activism, uh, they they were done away with, so that they wouldn't influence people in that way. And so here, you know, with uh, Courtney Love, you've got the situation of I I interviewed her biological father, um, Hank Harrison, and he said that um, when Courtney Love, uh, he was estranged from his own daughter. His, his daughter, he married, I mean, he, he was dating this woman, um, Courtney Love's mother, uh, and they had this kid together. And, um, but she was, his, his mother, Courtney Love's mother was, was somewhat bizarre. And so he, he didn't want to keep going out there, but he wanted to raise their kid, um, you know, separately. And uh, her, her super wealthy parents, the Reese's, Jack Reese was her dad, or had abused Courtney Love's mother, according to a, um, you know, an autobiography of that woman. She said her dad had abused, sexually abused her growing up, and so he was super wealthy. He had investments in Bosch and Lom and uranium mines, etc. And they paid off um, Hank Harrison's lawyer to to lose custody completely of of Courtney Love. So this is when she was about four or five years old, and so she ends up. Um, going through all kinds of stuff and, and ends up sending him a letter when she's maybe 13 years old and stuck in a juvenile delinquent facility saying, uh, you know, I, they've been abusing me for years. My counselors and psychiatrists that she was seeing since she was about three or four years old by different accounts. Yeah, anywhere from two to four years old, she started seeing counselors and psychiatrists for some reason, which is incredibly you know, young age to see them. Uh, she said they were all having sex with me and giving me all kinds of, uh, uh, you know, exotic drugs and these drugs were MKUltra drugs that were used on hypnosis. There were psychohypnotic drugs, tuinols and things like that. And uh, she names these exotic drugs at 13 years old in this letter to her dad. So her dad gets her out of this juvenile delinquent facility. And uh, he didn't realize that, um, that she had turned into somewhat of a monster at such an early age because she already had a serious drug problem um, she was started prostituting herself by, you know, um, you know, her mid-teen years, he says, and uh, he found, you know, heroin, heroin syringes around his house when she stayed over, you know, she was living with him, you know, at different times. And so he had a hard time dealing with her and his, his new wife said she's got, you know, he, they, we can't keep, you know, dealing with, we can't keep having heroin needles around our house. And um, so anyway, he uh, he had to go to Ireland for research on a, a book. He was a writer, and he's in Ireland. And um, she visits him in Dublin when she's uh, about seventeen years old. And 
uh, a guy befriended him while he was in Ireland and in, in Dublin and at different parts of Ireland, a guy named Stephen O'Leary. And uh, Stephen O'Leary proceeds to, according to Hank Harrison, uh, hang out with Courtney Love, 17-year-old Courtney Love. O'Leary's maybe in his uh, mid to late 20s or so. And, um, and then proceeds to take her over to uh, Britain, to England, to first to London, then to Liverpool scene where there's a bunch of rising musicians. She had on her, uh, according to different biographies, over a thousand hits of acid. Okay, at Jesus 17 years old, Christ. she proceeds to to distribute it to these musicians in the Liverpool scene, uh, distributes it like candy to all these musicians, and that duplicates the actions of Robert Lashbrook. I told you, the assistant director of MK Ultra from 1965, that, that you know duplicates what he was doing. And these are a bunch of rising musicians. You know, Adam Man, uh, Echo and the Bunnymen. The Pogues were, were uh, playing around there at the time. And she disrupts a lot of these bands, both, you know, disrupts their mind with the acid, disrupts them with sleeping with a bunch of them. And, and uh, you know, she just, yeah, is, uh, and meanwhile, this, this guy, Stephen O'Leary, ends up years later in around 2000, mid 2000s, 2005 or six or seven or so, writes a letter to Hank Harrison saying that, uh, you know, I'm dying of cancer right now and I'm back in my Minnesota, you know, home. But I just wanted to tell you that, um, you know, uh, that uh, it was it was ni nice hanging out with your daughter um, for that time in the 1980s. But I actually was uh, kind of working for the U.S. government at that time. And I was I wasn't you know, a CIA agent per se, but I was reporting back to the U.S. Embassy every week with letters and or, you know, making, you know, in-person reports for the government. And um, and so he basically admitted what he was doing at that time. And he was doing it with his brother, Kevin O'Leary, he's, you know, uh, Hank Harrison said. Now, so here's Kevin and Steve O'Leary uh, working, he says, and Hank Harrison said they were both still working for the government. And they also um, took Courtney Love to some place called Ockenden uh, Ventures, which was a uh, refugee camp for uh, war refugees from the Vietnam War and then the later wars, um, the uh, Iraq War and all. And um, which is very interesting because Mark David Chapman was taken to Fort Chaffee refugee camp uh, where uh, former Vietnam you know, refugees from the Vietnam War were taken um, in the late 1970s. So there's some bizarre, you know, parallels with, with uh, coincidences. You know, co coincidences, yeah, with uh, Cobain's murder and John Lennon's murder, and um, so then, you know, and we also see that. Um, so I found I found uh, the obituary for Stephen O'Leary talks about you know how he he's, he just like he's in Minnesota, he died in Minnesota the way Hank Harrison said in 2007, the way Hank Harrison told me, the way he published in his book that he was putting out as a pdf book um i have the the book the original book when they finally put it out in regular print version in hard copy version they left out the cia stuff they left out the appendix with the letter from the cia you know uh, operative stephen o'leary and all that stuff and that's a shame but um nonetheless i have the original version i show it in my film and um so here is um, Kevin O'Leary and Steve O'Leary. And the question is, and so I also have uh, Hank Harrison being interviewed by a friend, you know, a guy who had interviewed me a few times. And that guy asked me to come on and ask Hank Harrison a few more questions that interview. 
And Hank Harrison says some of the stuff that he had said to me on phone. He said it in this interview, and I have that in my film too, Drugs as Weapons Against Us. And so, um, you know, this is some of the documentation that, yes, Courtney Love appeared to be handled by uh, CIA agents. Um, apparently, her, her entire adult life, it, it appears, because when you look at, um, you know, I don't know if it's the same Kevin O'Leary for sure, but there's, uh, I, you know, there's footage of her out with Kevin O'Leary. Um, who's much older than her and people are asking like what do you you know are you guys actually a couple even though there's like a you know 20 you know a 10 or 15 20 year difference in age or whatever it is um, but you know they can be seen hanging out um, and so there was a guy named Ellen Hoke who said that uh, Courtney Love offered him 50 grand fifty thousand dollars to blow uh, Kurt Cobain's head off and he he says this on film Eldon Hooks says this on film and he passed a polygraph test with the top uh, polygrapher, you know, when, um, you know, when a national news program, uh, you know, investigating this inside edition might have been or something like that. I forget which program it was. Um, but so when he said on film for Nick Broomfield, several days after he said that on film, he ended up dead. And he and, and he had said on film also, but I do know who took that 50. I, I was going to take that $50,000 because he, he's an alcoholic and he needed the money. Uh, but he said, uh, but I didn't get a chance, but I do know who took that, that, you know, 50,000. And he started mentioning the name and a guy was named Alan Wrench. And he said, Alan, then he, he cut himself off. And he said, well, let the FBI, you know, catch him not knowing what the FBI was really doing. But, um, and he ends up dead several days later. And the last person seen with him was Alan Wrench. So that's some of the evidence that yes, uh, Courtney Love was in knowingly or unknowingly being handled and, and, uh, you know, helped with the aided in whatever happened with, you know, the more basically the murder of her husband, Kurt Cobain. Thank God I asked that question. Um, that's, that was, that would have bugged me if I would have just skipped out on Kurt Cobain. Yeah. Cause that's one of the, at least for my generation, that's probably one of the biggest influences. Everyone wears a Nirvana t-shirt, even though some people don't know what it means, but whatever. Um, I'll make sure I link all your links in the description, John. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. Um, thanks for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank.